You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and love. And we thank you that you have revealed your love and revealed yourself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we have the, the scriptures which bear witness to him. So we do pray this morning as your word is read and preached that you would illumine it and us today by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might encounter your great love for us by which with it we can never be overcome. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Great to see you here on this Sunday, the last Sunday in August. Good to see all you kids getting back to school. Um, great to see all of you adults, both uh, longtime members and visitors. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. And welcome to our fall season, um, even though it doesn't feel like fall yet. This, uh, this fall, we're going to be studying um, an ancient book in the Christian scriptures called the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, there's, there's different kinds of scripture in the Bible, different genres, if you will. Um, and Ecclesiastes is a book that comes from the genre that's called wisdom literature. There's three books in particular that form this little triad of wisdom literature on the book of Proverbs, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And each of these books, in very different ways, are trying to help the people who read them to understand how to live wisely, how to live wisely. Um, and Ecclesiastes is, we could say, one of the most depressing of the three, and yet, I would say, one of the ironically most hopeful, and we're going to be spending our fall um, looking at this wonderful book. Um, so um, if you want to open your Bibles, we're just going to start from the very beginning today in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, um, and, or you could just listen, and Andrew is going to read to us. So let's hear God's word. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. 
No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. that I have seen the Barbie movie twice, actually. So without spoiling too much, for those of you who haven't seen it, the movie opens in Barbie land, where Barbie and all the other Barbies and all the Kens live, where everything is perfect and tidy and clean and fun and pink. And then one day, Barbie wakes up and things aren't perfect. She has bad breath. And she burns her waffle. And she discovers her feet are no longer flat. And suddenly wearing high heels is extremely uncomfortable. And worst of all, she is troubled by irrepressible thoughts of death. And this leads her on a journey out of Barbie land into the real world. And there is this one scene, which I think is probably one of the pivotal scenes of the movie, and she's sitting in a park. For those of you who have seen it, you you remember this scene. She's sitting in a park, and she's taking in the world for the very first time. She's looking around and seeing people do various different things, and she sees people uh, laughing and people crying. She sees deep relational connectedness, and then she sees deep relational brokenness. She sees joy. She sees despair. She sees beautiful things, and she sees terrible things. And she suddenly realizes that all of her ideas about what it meant to be human were wrong, and that being human is more wonderful and more horrible than she ever imagined. And for the very first time in her life, she begins to cry. Ecclesiastes, in a way, is inviting us into an experience like that, my dear friends. It is inviting us to come out of our dreamlands, uh, to come out of our pretend visions of the world, and to wake up to the world as it actually is. Not what you hope it would be, not what you dream it would be, not that you remembered it would be, but as the world actually is. And what is our world? What is our world, dear family? Our world is a beautiful, terrible thing. Our world is a tragic, sacred thing. Our world is a world of love and cancer, of kindness and meanness, of noble virtue and unspeakable evil, of overwhelming joy and shattering sorrow. This is our world. And it's the world every single one of us has to live in, whether you are a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or a Hindu, or whether you are from a poor family or a wealthy family, or whether you're from the city or the country. This is the world that all of us have to live in. This is the world in which we have to learn how to be human. And so the author of Ecclesiastes wants to help us live in this world, this beautiful broken world. And so Ecclesiastes is this long poetic meditation on what it means to be human in a world that is created by God and that is good. He actually believes that. And yet also at the same time, a world that has gone so very wrong 
and that is full of pain and suffering and sorrow and confusion. The author wants to help us navigate this world, but I got to just warn y'all, it's not going to feel like help sometimes. Sometimes it's going to feel like the way that a a root canal is helpful. (laughs) Sometimes it'll feel like a punch in the face or a plunge in an ice cold bucket of water, right? That's because this author, he wants to shock us out of our pat answers and simplistic formulas and superficial sentimentalities. He wants to like poke us like with a cattle prod and poke us and prod us and and get us to rethink our assumptions about the world and to forsake our easy answers. In other words, he wants us, he wants you to stop living in Barbie land. Okay? Now you might be thinking, dude, life is hard enough as it is, Monday to Saturday. (laughs) Why are we going to spend the majority of our fall in this book? Well, there's a lot of good reasons. And let me just tell you what a few of them are. First of all, Ecclesiastes is amazing is because it asks some of the hardest, biggest questions that human beings ask. And these are not just questions that ancient people asked. These are questions that are the hardest, biggest questions that humans ask today. Things like, does life have a purpose? Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much injustice? Why does life so often feel so unfair? Does God even care? Is God there at all? Is life really worth living? Anybody in the house asking any of those questions? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you are. And even if you're not, you will at some point in your life. And even if you're not now, There are people around you, your friends and family and colleagues who are, and there are people all over the world asking those questions. And what's awesome about Ecclesiastes is it is seeking to answer those questions, but doing so in such an incredibly honest way, right? Let me put you on a secret, especially if you're new to church. Religious people are not typically comfortable with unanswered questions. Like we like things neat and tidy in in a box. And what often happens is, is that religious folks will offer answers that appear to be superficially satisfying, but in the end are profoundly untrue. And if you're new to the church, or if you, you may have been burned by the church or burned by a religious person who has done something like that to you before. Ecclesiastes doesn't do that. Right away in verse one, the writer of Ecclesiastes introduces us to our tour guide for this journey. If you look at verse one, it says this, the words of Kohelet, your NIV translation may say teacher, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, some people, um, actually a lot of people traditionally in the ancient church, at least traditionally um, saw the author of Ecclesiastes as Solomon, King Solomon, but that is not likely the case for a number of pretty important historical reasons that I can't go into now. But the biggest reason is that unlike the book of Proverbs, it's never identified as Solomon. The author is just the person, the character is simply called Kohelet, which just sort of means one who gathers an assembly of people together, sort of like a teacher. Think of Kohelet as a philosopher or a professor, or maybe your philosophy professor in college who wore that corduroy jacket with the weird patches on the sleeves and smoked a pipe and had that really dour look on his face and talked in a deep accent like Andrew, right? This is, this is, uh, um, this is the guy who comes to your party to poop on it, right? He's like the party pooper. And He is the tour guide for this journey. Um, I'm just going to call him Kohelet Kohelet throughout this, or teacher, just because that sounds cool. Anyway, right here in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, the author, who's actually, the author, Kohelet is not the author. The author has simply collected the teachings of Kohelet, right? 
And he introduces us to this guy and gives us a little teaser of what we can expect from him in verses three through 11. Now, ultimately we see that Kohelet is going to go where church people are uncomfortable going, right? He wants us to face the, 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 the brutal truth, the baffling truth of human existence, the futility of work and the march of time and the vacuousness of pleasure and the inevitability of death. He is a believer in God. We're gonna see that. He's a strong believer in God, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. But his faith is not a happy, clappy faith, you know, that ignores the harsh realities of the world. Kohelet wants to expose the impotence of almost everything we live for as human beings. Wealth, career, success, status, relationships, ambition, adventure, pleasure. What are you living for, friends? Well, the author wants to introduce you to Kohelet. He's the guy operating the crane with a wrecking ball over in the corner aimed right at the purpose of your life. And he's going to take it down, right? Really fun at parties, this guy. Um, but remember, the reason he's doing this, the reason he wants us to face up to reality, the reason why he's exposing all the false and empty ways that we construct our lives is not to tear us down, but to build us up. It's not because he wants to destroy your faith, but it's because he wants you to have a real faith, a faith that can face anything. He, he wants to show us how you can live well and keep going, even when we're suffering, even when we don't have answers, even when you can't see clearly, even when your heart and mind are full of doubts. In other words, he's teaching us how to be human in a world like ours. So I just want to say this as we start, whoever you are, and you know, I know a lot of you, but some of you I don't know, and I don't kind of know, I, some of you I don't know where you're coming from today, and I just want you to know that I know this sounds a little jarring, but I, I really do believe that you will come to deeply appreciate this book. If you are not a believer in Christianity, if you're not a believer in God, I think you will appreciate this book because this book dares to ask the hardest questions that religious people often refuse to ask. And it refuses to offer the religious platitudes that religious people often offer. And I think you will appreciate that about this guy. Now, if you're a Christian here today, and if you are a believer in God, then I also think you will appreciate this book because it does dare to ask the most hard and honest questions about life. And yet he ultimately holds on to and commends a ongoing faith in a God who is good. Okay? So this is going to be fun. You ready? Ready, friends? Ready, friends? Okay, so let's just jump right in. Verse 2 we get the main message of the book. This is a message that's repeated throughout. And he says this, meaningless, meaningless, says Kohelet, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. <laughs> the word there um, is the Hebrew word hebel. Hebel, can we say that all together? Hebel, hebel um, means literally smoke, vapor. Very difficult to translate into English. Sometimes it says meaningless, sometimes it says vanity, sometimes it says absurd, but he's really just saying everything is vapor. Everything is vapor. It's a, it's a word that appears 38 times throughout this book. It's his dominant metaphor to describe human life. Kids, any of you guys ever been camping or sat around a campfire and you, have you watched the smoke come up from the flames of the campfire? It's so fun to just watch smoke, isn't it? And, and if you look at it, if you look at smoke, it's it's crazy, right? Because it's constantly shifting shapes. And if you tried to, it looks a little solid, but if you tried to grab it, it would just slip through your fingers. 
and it's unpredictable, right? You're standing on this side of the fire and it's going to your, against your brother, but then, but then it starts coming at you and then you move and it comes back at you again, right? And when, and when you're in the midst of it, kind of your eyes sting and you can't see clearly. What Koholad is saying is life is like that. It's hebel, which is to say it's confusing and confounding and frustrating and baffling and sometimes it's a downright enigma it's absurd, right? And think about it. Like, just, just, y'all just think about our world. Our, this is a good world, a, a beautiful world, a world full of, you know, love and beauty and art and sex and good wine and good food and meaningful work and deep friendships, right? That's, that's this world. And then there's this, this broken, terrible world that is full of war and poverty and unemployment and trafficking and betrayal and tragedy and terror and murder and despair and aging and suffering and death. And these, this is the same world. It's absurd. It's vanity of vanities. It's hevel. Pretty much impossible to understand. And why is he saying this? He's saying it to provoke us. Yes, but because he's inviting us with Kohelet to join him on his journey, to peer over his shoulder as he tries to figure out How do we, as human beings, find meaning and purpose in a world like this? So we ask the question. This is the big question of the book. Verse three, he says this. What what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? In other words, what does all the stuff we do as humans amount to? I mean, we all want to matter, right? And so what does it amount to? What's the payoff? What's the point? When you get to the end of your life, will all of it have been worth it? So he's inviting you to go on a journey to explore that question with him. He's going to get to the answer. Eventually it will come at the end of the book. But I just got to warn you that right from the start, he's telling you in this poem in verse 3 through 11, that it's going to be a futile search. Even if you just look out the window for a few minutes, minutes, you will come to the inevitable conclusion that the answer to this question is what? What class? Hebel, vapor, smoke, absurdity. Your life is like that. So let's jump in to what he says about it. So first he says, verse four, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. He's drawing a contrast between the solidity of the earth and the fleetingness of your life. Uh, Just think about it. The scientific consensus is that the earth has been around for about 4.5 billion years, right? Now think about your life. How long are you going to live? 70, 80, maybe 90 years. Some of you beat that odds already. That's great. Well done. But no matter how long you live, your life is a fraction of a fraction of a blip of the earth's timeline. Your life is over almost as soon as it begins. And, but yet while you're living it, I mean, we're all living right now, it feels very permanent, doesn't it? It feels long and important and permanent, but it's not. Generations go, generations come, are forgotten so quickly. People that were famous when I was a kid, people like, uh, Phil Necro or Cindy Lauper. Like we barely even remember them right now. Who are these people? When I was a kid, um, when I was a teenager, the oldie station 
played music from like the 1950s and 60s. And now when I, my kids listen to the radio, the oldie station plays music from when I was a teenager, right? <laughs> that's, that's how quickly time passes. Generations come, generations go. There's no remembrance of people of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. If you think about it, you have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. You have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. Most of the people you have heard of, you did not know personally. And even those people are incompletely remembered. And even the people that are most important to your existence, you do not remember. Raise your hand if you know the names of your great-great-grandparents. One, two, three, four. Four of you out of 400. Well done, right? Well done. You really proved my point. These are people that are literally responsible for your existence, and you do not know their names. You don't know what they loved. You don't know what they hated. You don't know what made them happy. You don't know what made them sad. You literally know nothing about them. They are just forgotten. Almost everyone is forgotten, and you will be too, says Kohelet. You will live a few years. You will do some stuff, and you will die, and the only thing left will be the planet that you used to live on, and the earth will keep going, and the mountains will keep standing, and the sun will keep shining, and the rivers will keep flowing, utterly indifferent to your existence. Generation after generation is forgotten forever. Your life is that fleeting. See, I told you this would be fun, guys. Really fun. Now, you might be saying, no way. Okay, life is short. Yeah, we all know life is short, but it can be meaningful. It can be good. It can be meaningful. Oh, really? Says Kohelet. Verse five, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back. The wind blows to the sun and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. So obviously he's working with an ancient cosmology about the way that the world and the universe works. And so in his mind, he sees the sun rise and then he sees it set. And then he just imagines the sun galloping, racing across the other side of the world to start it back all over again. It's this exhausting image of weariness, right? And then he says the same boring repetition happens with the wind. And then the same with the streams and the rivers. In verse seven, they keep flowing into the sea with nothing to show for it, right? No, no real fruitfulness that the sea just stays the same. In Greek mythology, any of y'all ever heard of Sisyphus? You know, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the guy who was doomed to an eternal existence of meaningless labor. So one day he has to push a boulder up the top of a mountain and then he gets it to the top and it rolls back down again. And then he has to do it all over again. And he does this over and over and over again for all eternity. That, says Kohelet, is your life. One long repetitive act of weariness with nothing that really changes. I hate going to the gym. One of the reasons I hate it is because of all the treadmills because all these people running really fast and going nowhere right? And Kohelet says, that's what your life is like, right? Each generation is born into this world and is running with all the vigor and all the sweaty weariness, right? And no, and they're just not going anywhere, no matter how hard they're moving, no matter how hard you work. It's the same thing. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to get your coffee and you're going to get your kids dressed and you're going to get them to school and you're going to sit in traffic and you're going to go to work and you're going to see some people and do some stuff and you're going to go home and put dinner on the table and you're going to go to bed and you're going to wake up and have your coffee and do the same thing over and over again. Same office, same traffic, same people, same life. Nothing ever changes. The world doesn't improve. Nothing gets better. Life is futile. Well, 
You might say, that's not really true. I mean, look at all the human advancement and progress we've made throughout civilization. I don't think so, says Kohelet. He says in the next verse, if you could turn there, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. See, we think we're doing innovative things. Tim Cook comes out and he says, it's the iPhone 14, guys. It's the best one ever. And Kohelet is like, woohoo, better camera, a little bit better operating system. Well done. We had tech. We had innovation. We, just like every other human who has ever lived, has had to figure out our life and our schedules and our calendars. We have had to figure out communication and provision and sickness and aging and death. Your tech isn't ultimately changing anything. You think by having a supercomputer in your pocket and putting a space station in the sky and putting self-driving cars in the road is going to do anything about keeping our families intact and protecting us from oppressive dictators and changing selfish hearts and stopping the speed of death? No, nothing really changes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you work, get up at 5 a.m. and work your butt off and are incredibly productive or you sleep till noon. You die, you live, you leave this place the same. Nothing ever really changes. Vapor. So back to the big question. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Well, he's already warning you, you are not going to be happy with the answer because the answer is, what is it, class? Hebel, vapor, smoke like a sandcastle getting washed away by the afternoon tide. Human life and advancement and accomplishments ultimately fall to the irrepressible and cruel march of time. Time and death erases us and everything we care about. So that's it, verse 1 through 11. Let's sing. <laughs> I'm just trying to be true to the text, y'all. That's my job, to be true to the text. Well, let me, okay, but before we close, let me just offer just a couple of bits of hope, okay? A couple of bits of hope. First of all, remember Kohelet's goal. What is his goal? To shock you awake, right? To wake you up, to help us live meaningful lives in this world, a world in which it is so hard to be human. And if you are going to live a good and beautiful life, the first thing you have to do is get, out of Barbie land. If you're going to be a person who is wise, you need to recognize the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that the world is good and yet terribly broken. And you are a glorious person made in God's image. And yet you are a creature. And as such, you are finite, limited, and you can control almost nothing. And so stop living in dreamland. Stop pretending that if you just work hard and raise your kids right and get them in the right schools and have X amount of money in your investments, that things will turn out well for you and for your family. Just, just stop pretending that. Stop pretending that if you move to a new house, you'll be happier and you will never want to move again. Just, just stop. Stop pretending that if you end one relationship and start a new one, you won't ever feel trapped. Stop, stop pretending that if you were just married or if you just were not married, <laughs> that you would be content. Stop pretending that if you just had more money, 
you'd be satisfied. Or if you just changed jobs, you would be fulfilled. Or if you could just get through this week's of dirty laundry and shopping lists and kids' activity, the next week will be so much calmer. Stop pretending, y'all. Stop pretending that you're just going to get to this place, this mythical dreamland place where you will finally arrive and no longer be living in a world of weariness. Stop pretending and start living. Start living your life as it actually is. Not as you wish it would be, not as you hoped it would be, not as you dream it might be, but by going after something all the time that you think will bring you meaning and satisfaction and happiness, you are missing out on the life you actually have, a life that is really hard, but also really beautiful. And so this book is about learning, learning to embrace what it actually means to be human. This book is about relinquishing control and stewarding well the one thing you do actually control, your attitude and the way that you live your beautiful and broken life. And this book is about how to live a humble, God-fearing, God-trusting, grateful life, even when you have very few answers. And in the end, as we'll see, that's what makes for a truly wonderful life. So there's a little hope. But let me just end with an even bigger hope. When you read Ecclesiastes, it's clear that it stands in tension with most of the rest of the Bible, right? Think of it as Kohelet is like a minority report, or he's a counter-testimony. We might be surprised that this book is even in the Bible, but I love that it is because it reminds us that God is okay with your wrestling and doubts and questions. Hey, you guys who are struggling out there, did you hear me on that? God inspired this book to be in this scripture. God is okay with your struggles. He's okay with your doubts. He's okay with your questions. God doesn't need us to be people who always have quick answers and always sound faithful, right? In fact, God himself might want to mess with our theological systems. God might want to dislodge us from these comfortable corners of the Christian bubbles where we've been camping out for a while. I'm glad we have Ecclesiastes in the Bible. But I am also glad we have more than Ecclesiastes in the Bible (laughs) because we'll need to remember as we go through this book week by week that as true as it is, it is not the whole truth. It is not the whole truth. My calling as your pastor is not to preach to you the wisdom of Koholeth. My calling is to preach to you the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And so don't worry, we'll be remembering that every week. There is nothing new under the sun, says Koholeth. And that's true. And yet Kohelet was not in a position to see or imagine that one day the triune creator God who created this beautiful befuddling world would actually enter into it himself. That is truly new under the sun, right? And what Kohelet, the son of David, could not have guessed is that one day a truer son of David would arrive and literally enter into the hebel with us, toiling with us, bearing our humanity, taking it on and into himself. He couldn't have seen that. And yes, Kohelet will remind us again and again of death as the great equalizer, but he could not even imagine or anticipate that Jesus himself, the Son of God, would enter into death on our behalf, that he would not run for it. He would submit to it, even death on a cross, like that 
passage that Brooke read earlier. And that somehow in his death, our death is defeated. That's something entirely new. And so Ecclesiastes is true, but it's not the whole truth. And so in the midst of all of this hebel, y'all, in the midst of all the hebel, we hold fast to God in Jesus Christ and God in Jesus Christ holds fast to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, no matter how absurd your life gets. So this is the way of wisdom. This is ultimately what we learn about truly being human, facing and receiving your life as it actually is in all of its beauty and brokenness, claiming every day the hope that you have in the gospel, that Jesus Christ, God, the one beyond the sun, has entered into life under the sun with us, embracing our weariness, asking our questions, grieving our sorrow, bearing our burdens, sharing our shame, dying our death, entering into the vapor with us, God with us, to give us hope, to restore meaning, and ultimately to give us resurrection life. So take heart, friends. Yes, it is so hard to be human in this world, but Jesus says, take courage. I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We're so grateful, God, for this honest book and that in your providence, you inspired it and caused it to be recorded and written and included in our sacred book, the Bible. We pray as we spend some time in it this fall that we would be willing to honestly face the truth that this book teaches, but that we would come away from this study not more discouraged, but more hopeful, more able to receive and live the lives that we actually have, that we would stop pretending and start living grateful, faithful lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.